This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. This year we are exploring the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament in what we're calling a chronogeobiological flow. That is, we have been following the chronology of the book of Acts and we're coming to the end of that chronology. We're, we're right at the end of it in Acts chapter 28, the final chapter in the book of Acts. And then we've been veering off to the places and people and topics addressed in the book of Acts. And one of those places is Rome, where the book of Acts ends. And so we'll take a look at the book of Romans. Now, Romans was written before Paul went there, which is different. Most of his letters he wrote after he had been somewhere. He wrote to the Romans before being there. So we're not, we're not looking at these epistles or these letters in the order in which they were written, but more thematically. And so as Paul is arriving in Rome and doing some things there in Rome, we want to take a look at, at the book of Romans. You ever been to, you ever been to Rome or you ever been to any of these places like that? I, I was in Rome uh, for a couple of hours. I was on the tarmac, actually. Uh, flying back from Ethiopia, we stopped in Rome, and they wouldn't let us get off the plane. Like, so does that count? Yeah, that's fair. That counts. I've been to Rome. You've been to Rome. Yeah, it was yeah. it was the middle of the night too, so I couldn't even see, see outside <laughs> beyond uh, the little lights on the airport. So I've been to Rome. Yeah, that counts. Okay, I've been to sure. Rome. So, folks, I have been to Rome. So I'm an authority on this topic that we're doing today, and we're we're going to take a look at this. I'd like to go to Rome someday, and that'd be a pretty cool trip. We should do a um, we should do like a pastor research trip to Rome. We can film on location. Doug can come with us. Doug could come and film on location, and we can like we can do like location sermons on location teaching and sermons. Okay. Do you think that that will drive our listenership or viewership up? No, that won't help us. Okay, you know, uh, just, my mom, my mom's influence is is only so much. Will she fund the trip? Uh, we can ask. Okay. It never hurts to ask, right? Yeah. No. Okay. No, because a no is same as not asking. That's right. It's not like a couple of car salesmen here. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's right. You know, I think about jobs that I would have been horrible at. That would have been one. I'm oh, just not a good salesperson. I would have told everybody like, yeah, this car has problems with the carburetor and yeah. oh, that one over there, transmission problems. And- yeah. And I, you know, just knowing what the, the bottom line would have been, you know, look, you can buy, purchase this car for this price. This is where they'll go, you know, so right. just take the right. 15% off the top and, and you're good. Yeah. Though yeah. right now you got to buy everything at sticker price. Is anyway. that still the case? Yeah. yeah, yeah. As I'm coming up on the year anniversary of purchasing uh, my last vehicle, after having to get rid of the car that I had had for 18 years and put 250,000 miles on, it was the greatest car I've ever owned. And so I went out and bought another Camry, but had to pay full sticker price because that's where the market is at. And then on top of that, thankfully, when I bought the car last year, interest rates were okay compared to now. But back in January of 2021, you could get like a zero, almost a, pretty much a 0% interest rate uh, on a car purchase. And at that time, my oldest daughter was busting my chops about, hey, you should go get a car because, you know, get rid of, because we've had, we had a car for a long time. It had some issues. She's like, get rid of the car and go buy a new car, 0% interest dad. Now's the time to buy. And then having to pay like two and a half percent interest on it, 
uh, last year. She's like, she, you know, she was giving me the business for it. My 15 year old kid. She has reminded you. Yeah. Maybe she can book our journey to Rome. Yeah, maybe. She's got this thing figured out how we can. Yeah. Well, I just told her I was going to make up for it by charging her rent. So there <laughs> that sounds fair to me. That's a, that's a good way to that's a good way to do it. All right. So uh, yeah, Paul. In, interestingly enough, he had to pay rent when he was in Rome under arrest. <laughs> and so let's take a look at that story. It's in Acts chapter twenty eight, and this is after the long journey on a ship, and they were shipwrecked, and got it on another ship, and finally made it there. And so we're in Acts chapter twenty eight. Let me pick it up at verse eleven. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island where they were shipwrecked. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. I don't know anything about those twin gods, but um, it's an interesting thing to include. It was a very, very uh, Greek god type of ship that was going off there. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. After we go to Italy, we'll have these pronunciations down, brother. So in other words, they've gone off this island, and they're arriving at the, the mainland of Italy now. And it says in verse 14, There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. So this is the first time Paul's made it to Rome, which was his desire for a long, long time. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So there's the case. He had to rent his own property, but they put a soldier there under this house arrest to guard him until he could appear before the Roman Caesar. And it says, skipping down all the way to verse 30, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So a couple things that I just wanted to touch base on. We, we talked recently about when Paul was in Caesarea, which was over on where Israel is, and he was under arrest there for two years. And now he finally arrives at Rome, and he is put under arrest, now under house arrest, in his own rented property for two years. So there's like two years here and two years there, and... It had to take some great endurance for this guy to keep going with his life. I mean, two years is a long time. We we talk about, you know, the pandemic sort of shut the world down for a year and a half or for two years. Didn't that seem like forever when it was going on? And like and so Paul's like two years and he's he keeps getting stuck in these spots and he's not out traveling and doing the exciting movement that we've we've seen in the book of Acts. He's just on hold, or, or so we think. So again, what do you think is going on as people are coming to him? I'm guessing they're coming to him because of what we're getting ready to talk about. 
they'd already received the, the letter that we call the Book of Romans. So they're coming to talk and spend some time and like learn more about what he's saying and all these things. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, the poor, poor prison guard, the soldier that's there. He's got to hear all this as they rotate shifts. Um, what's going on in these two years? What, what, what's your guess here, brother? Uh, I, I think um, one of the things that just always stands out to me in these moments with Paul is that, you know, we are so immediate about everything, you know, in, in the West, because we, we have everything uh, at our fingertips. Um, we lack patience uh, and, and with a lot of things. And, and I look at Paul, and it, it would have been easy for him to grow frustrated or impatient. It would have been easy for him to see these imprisonments as a hindrance to, to his ministry, uh, to the ministry that God had called him to. And yet Paul doesn't look at life through that lens because Paul looks at life through the lens of God's sovereignty. And so Paul knows that God is ultimately in control and that if he is in jail, this is where God has him. And so rather than growing impatient, rather than growing frustrated, Paul looks at it through the lens of, okay, God has me here. What has God called me to do while I'm here? And, uh, and that's, that's one, of those, uh, one of the things that we see constantly with Paul, with his life, that really, um, as a pastor, has always uh, been a source of encouragement to me. Um, because ministry takes forbearance, it takes patience. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we have a tendency to, to dive into something and think that we need immediate results. You know, we look at things you know, we have a tendency to look at metrics. Well, where are we after three months? Where are we after six months? Where are we after a year? And while those things can be important, um, also, again, going back to the question of, am I being faithful where, where, where God has me? Am I being faithful to live into the call uh, as to where God has me? And so you look at Paul's life and again, doesn't grow impatient, doesn't grow frustrated, just gives himself to the ministry that God has called him to. And in, in this time in Rome, he has a ton of ministry that he accomplishes. Yeah, he's writing all kinds That's of letters. Right. And now, it's different than what he's been doing because he's not going from place to place. But now it's like God's got him basically on hold so that he can communicate. He can take a hot second to communicate to all these places uh, that he's been or all these places that he's hoped to go or all these places like Colossae that you know he sent people to. Um, or, or people have shared with him about the ministries that's happened there, and he's making all of these awesome connections uh, through the letters that he's writing. He's making all of these, uh, uh, he's using it as an opportunity uh, to offer encouragement, to offer correction, but to communicate uh, with these churches uh, throughout the region. So, so much for the right to a speedy trial, right? Because <laughs> that's not the way it worked. I'm, I guess Caesar's court system was backed up. Because because they keep having these two hour delays, and in the meantime, he's he's just waiting for somebody to hear his case. So so he, they're coming and talking to him, and and perhaps some of them had been familiar with the what we call the Book of Romans, this letter he had written to them. And so let's take I like to take a look the next several weeks at the Book of Romans. We will not be able to cover it all. So there you have it. It's sixteen chapters long, and we have a handful of you know I don't know three or four weeks, we're going to talk about it. So we won't be able to cover all of it by any means whatsoever. 
But I just want to just use this as an opportunity to jump in and take a look at what he wrote in the book of the book. You've spent some time in the book of Romans. You, you, um, your, your seminary time, you spent some time in Romans, right? You did some prep work in Romans and you, you've, is, am I right about that? You, Romans is like a, a thing you've spent some time dwelling on. Yeah. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time in Romans. Uh, when I was in seminary, now granted this was, you know, 20 years ago, uh, I translated Romans, and so um, that was one of the the uh, Greek uh, classes that I had was specifically focused on Romans, and so I had to translate. I had to write multiple what they call exegetical papers on Romans. I've got like a 50-page single-spaced exegetical uh, that I wrote 20-something years ago on Romans on like four verses in Romans chapter 3. Um See, I've I've dwelt <laughs> I've dwelt there a bit. I'm not sure uh, how much I've retained. Hopefully, some. And uh, so, anyway, that's it, that's where I'm at. I think that's going to be a good conversation. Yeah, we'll uh, see. You know, we'll yeah, see. well, you know, yeah. It, there's, I mean, there's. Listen, there's too much to cover here for yeah. for either of us. That's for for sure. But man, it is it's chock full of of just stuff. Like you said, you you, you focused on four verses. You could probably write that paper on almost any four verses in the book of Romans because there's just a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there, and not not just the the book itself, and and the but the, even the role that Romans has played in church history. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's Romans chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen that are are basically the this the impetus to the Protestant Reformation. It's what turned Martin Luther. Um, and there's a lot of others that are responsible for the Protestant Reformation. We focus on Luther, and Luther's heart was completely changed and transformed by his study, by his translate, uh, translation of Romans, um, specifically those, uh, those two verses, 16 and 17 in chapter 1. So those verses say this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's a powerful verse. And I think we'll, we're going to be looking at some of those themes. I'd like to spend some time in Romans 2 today, but the, some themes that are addressed there, uh, in particular the righteousness of God. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 2, again, only part of it because of time constraints and just the the depth that takes place here. But we'll begin in verse 1 of Romans chapter 2. You therefore, which means you should have read Romans 1, which we're not today, but you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to 
to lead you to repentance. I, I love that phrase, Ben, that last part of that, that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Sometimes I think we can get stuck on the word of God's judgment, you know, escape God's judgment at the end of verse 3, and it's real. God's judgment is a, a real thing, but his kindness is part of that judgment, and his, his desire for us is that we will repent, that we'll change our mindset, we'll turn our lives around, we'll stop facing toward the mirror of life or the, the shiny things of life, but rather we'll turn our, our eyes toward the cross of Christ. And that these, this verse, in verse 4, the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, his kindness, they're all called to, to penetrate our hearts and turn us away from a heart, as the reformers would say, curved in on itself, to a heart that's bent toward the goodness and kindness and peace and patience and love of God in our lives. What do you, what do you think about when you think of God's kindness that's intended to lead us to repentance? Yeah, God's kindness, God's patience, you know, which a lot of these words, these terms reflect the, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul writes about in, in Galatians chapter 5. Um, but, you know, there's that tendency, and I, I don't even know if it's necessarily conscience, conscious, but we oftentimes presume upon God's patience, you know, to the point to where there are some who presume upon the patience of God, which is what in some ways, Paul is calling out in the Jewish population that he's writing to, you know, in, in Romans chapter one, it was very much directed toward a Gentile population and their tendency toward uh, idolatry. Now, in some ways, he shifts focus to uh, the Jewish population. And one of the things he's saying is, is look, don't take God's patience and in, in basically not, you know, judging you and not uh, just throwing you under his wrath. Don't presume upon God's patience to where you, you don't believe you're not going to face judgment. Instead, look at the, the, the kind heartedness of God and his patience with you in wanting to wanting you to repent, to turn your hearts uh, to him. And so, yeah, we see, again, the, the character, the nature of God, to, to know that we serve this kind-hearted Father, this patient Father, this Father that desires for us to experience the fullness of His love by turning our hearts to Him, by repenting, by giving our lives uh, to Jesus Christ. Yeah, some people look at God as a cosmic killjoy, right? and that anything that the Bible calls sin— but we want to do is robbing us of our pleasure in life. But rather than seeing that, it's more like God's not a cosmic killjoy, but God is a father who loves his children and wants the very, very best for them at all times. So this goes on in verse five, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, his kindness is intended to lead to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Hmm. 
to those who, by persist by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. He's, he's here talking about this, this topic of having a repentant life that, that turns itself away from self and turns toward God and others and says that God sees that. <laughs> and we look at the words like righteous judgment, but God sees it. And he responds to that. And his desire is for us to live good and godly and, and righteous, wholesome lives. And when we do, it's, it, it measures up to God's desire for us. And because of that, there's, I think because of our connection and a deeper connection with God through his spirit who dwells in us, we have these incredible blessings in life. But when we refuse and when we do it our own way, uh, there's a price to pay that we cannot ignore. And he, he's not writing this to Caesar. He's writing this to believers. The, the letters written to the Christians, whether they're Gentile believers or Jewish believers, we, you've already talked about that a bit, but he's writing to believers and saying, realign your life with God. That's what repentance is. Turn your heart toward God when he calls you to that. What, what out of that stands out to you? Yeah, it just says sin has consequence. I mean, sin has consequence, obviously, for our relationship uh, with God. It, it creates uh, separation. Uh, it creates a life that is not aligned with God's will and then creates a life that undermines our ability to bear witness uh, to Christ, to live into the mission that God uh, has given us. And, and to that end, there will be, you know, sin has a natural consequence to it because sin reaps this function. And then sin also, it's, we, we face discipline um, for, for that sin because God in his nature, as a loving father, wants to turn us to him, wants to have our lives aligned with his will and his desire. And so we do, we will face consequence of, of our sin. And for those who reject Christ, the consequence is uh, that eternal separation from God is, is to experience the fullness of God's judgment, the fullness of, of God's wrath. And uh, one of the things that Paul lays out here is that whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you're both um, you're both staying guilty before the law of God, and therefore outside of Christ will exist separated from God. But for those who give themselves over to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, there is no favoritism. God receives us as his beloved children, and as his beloved children, we're called to reveal our belovedness to the world. This love that we've experienced, this love that God has poured out upon us, this, you know, by his kindness, by his patience, that, that should be reflected in our lives. Let's take that your exact thing you were talking about and 
put a bow on this by looking, skipping down to Romans chapter 3 and down in verse 22, Romans 3.22. It says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's all about having faith in Christ. It's, it's, it's trusting the cross of Christ, the, the blood of Christ for the redemption of our lives. And you've said it well, like all of us, Jew and Gentile, and, and to, we would say we are, it's on the level ground. We're all sinners before him. We all fall short of his glory. None of us can make it to him by ourselves. And we rely on Christ for that atoning work on the cross. And we receive it by faith. It's faith in Christ. So it's a, it's a powerful message. I mean, there is so much that we could talk about each one of these terms, atonement. We could spend a, a day on that and, and faith a day on that and, and on and on and on. There, redemption. There's so many power, power-packed words here. But I think that the point you were driving at is a good one, and that is it doesn't matter who we are, what our background is, what our, wh- how we were raised, or anything like that, where we were born. we all in the same spot. Because of sin in our lives, we don't measure up to God's glory. But because of Christ's work on the death, we receive his righteousness and are able to stand in the presence of God in our lives. And therefore, we're called to live in that righteousness. Amen. We, yeah. I've got, I've got nothing else to add to that. That's a, a perfect ending. Well, next time we're going to continue in the book of Romans. We explore more about what it has to say. Uh, we just encourage everybody to pick it up for yourselves and take a look at it because there is so so much in the book of Romans. It's a, it's kind of a thick letter to get through, but it is really valuable if you'd like to do that. Until next time, have a great week.